because our love will last forever and because we belong to one another, this love should never be shared with anyone else, but it should be secure and displayed openly for all to see and celebrate. You're listening to a sermon series titled Song of Solomon, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, well, for the last time, we uh, open up to the book of Song of Solomon. So turn there with me. In your Bibles, uh, we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And you guys got to stop this. We have to have a third service now. I'm not sure what is going on here, but God is good. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 5 and read to the conclusion of the book. So look at it with me. This is the word of the Lord. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Others, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. She, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. He, O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. She, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word, and Holy Spirit, we again ask for you to be our teacher, to illuminate uh, this text to us, this great and very enigmatic book, which can be very confusing to study, uh, to read, to discern, and then to apply. So Father, I ask that you'd bless this time. We thank you for your church. We thank you for this amazing opportunity to listen to your word being taught and then to allow the gospel to really make an impact, a transformation in our lives. So would you do that, Holy Spirit, in a way that only you can do it? We uh, can try our best to reform our lives and we fall short. But Lord, we thank you that just in one moment you can uh, begin to sanctify us and work our life for good. So we submit to your work, Holy Spirit, uh, for everyone here. If there's anyone here, Lord, who does not know Jesus, who has been walking in darkness and is questioning Christianity, is questioning the truth, would you allow them to be drawn by you, Father, to your Son, and that they would, as Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. They would embrace, they would greet Christ and embrace who Jesus is, who died on their behalf and who rose again to conquer sin and death. So draw all of us, Lord, closer to you, we pray through this text. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, it's been said that there are two times that a man doesn't understand a woman, before and after marriage. <laughs> 
Now, I don't know if I fully agree with that because if I do, my wife will talk to me afterwards about that. Um, But the fact is, uh, men and women are incredibly different. As much as the culture, the world around us would try to blur those gender lines and say that there's a a multiple amount of genders and a multiple amount, uh, and all of them are very similar and all of them are distinct, I would say very clearly the Bible shows us that there is a male and there's female, and we're very different. And so we are going to spend this last section of Scripture encouraging our wives from the Song of Solomon. Last week, we studied a passage and we talked about the men, about the husband. So what I don't want you to do today, husband, is say, I was paying attention last week. Now, you better take notes, woman. I don't want you to do that. Uh, neither, if, if you do that, then obviously your wife might say, we obviously weren't paying attention last week. So let's make sure we don't do that. Uh, as we conclude this book, I want to just summarize some of the things that we have studied. And if this is your first Sunday with us or first few Sundays, you're, you're in the very end. It's like picking up a book and reading the very end of a book. And so I want to give you a little bit of context to um, set this up. So we have learned in the Song of Solomon that there are different types of biblical literature and we have learned the different ways of interpreting them. This is wisdom literature. This is poetry. So we have to approach poetry differently than we would historical narrative. We've learned through this study that we should not awaken love until it is ready uh, where we're committed to someone in marriage. We've learned that singleness is not a disease that is cured by marriage. We've learned that marriage is actually more than just procreation. It's more than just pleasure, but it's intimacy, it's friendship, and it's actually, according to Ephesians 5, a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. We've learned, and hopefully we've learned, how to communicate in marriage and how to work through conflict. Maybe you haven't learned that. Go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, We've learned that God created sex. God's not embarrassed by it. It's okay to talk about it because it's in the scriptures. And God wants us to enjoy sex in the context of marriage. And then we've learned last week that men are called to love their wives by laying down their lives and cultivating what they have been given, what they have been given as a steward and high priest of their home. Now, as we close the book, this song, this is the final chorus. This is the last stanza. You can almost hear the music beginning to wind down and the melodies are coming to a close. And what we're going to see in this last section is the culmination, the culmination of friendship, of courtship, of partnership, of relationship, of any other words that end in ship. Those are all coming to a close in this song. And what we're going to see As we look at this, we are going to apply this to the wives at the end. But what we're going to see as we do that is we're going to see love, true love is not for sale. It's freely given. True love is mutual. True love is safe. True love is deep. And true love is eternal. I can't help but to think, every time I say the word true love, I think of the princess bride. I just, in my head, there's Wesley saying it. So last week we focused on the husband's role. We'll apply this to our wives. You did it too, didn't you? You were singing it and you're saying it in your head. So look at verse five. We actually begin um, uh, chapter eight, verse five with the wife who's ascending literally out from the wilderness. Eight, five says, who is that coming up from the wilderness? Now that's a, a portion of the song. That's a lyric that we sang earlier. We sang that back in chapter three. And in chapter three, we were singing that about Solomon. Remember Solomon in chapter three The bride is waiting for his triumphant arrival. And there in chapter three, he starts showing up out of the wilderness with uh, his whole procession. And he, with his regality and pomp and purple, riding on his chariot ultimately. 
He's showing up to his wedding. But here in chapter 8, verse 5, instead of Solomon, she's now the one coming up from the wilderness. And note what's different. Notice that she is now not looking for her husband, but she's now with her husband. But not just that. Notice in verse 5, she's leaning on her husband. Now, most likely, when it says she's leaning on her beloved, that's a reference to her older age. She has moved beyond merely longing for him. Now she's leaning on him. You could say that they and their marriage have overcome the obstacles that plague every marriage. They've traversed through joys, through life, through death, through sorrow, through hardship, celebration, new adventures, and even stinging loss. Together, they have walked through these difficulties, and so she has learned towards the end of her life to lay the weight of her life upon her husband. And in the second half of verse 5, we begin to hear her speak. She says, Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. So not to dive too into this, but she's essentially looking back at their family history. And she has fond memories of places that mark their story. And in this case, she remembers specific places where they built their intimacy. And for them, it's the apple tree where apparently his mother delivered him. His mother gave birth to him. And and this familiar place brought security and joy. As she looked back and said, that's where you were born. And so this apple tree was the place of nostalgic familiarity and good family memories. Now, it may not be an apple tree, but where do you in your family, in your marriage, have that place of romantic nostalgia? Uh, For some of us, it's where we had our first date. Maybe it's where you had your first kiss. Maybe where he proposed. Maybe it's that spot where you took that picture together and and you put that in the album and you just look back and remember that spot. Maybe you go back and visit it every year. Jen and I, on our wedding night, um, we actually had a wedding afternoon because we were broke. So we actually had our wedding at two o'clock to save money and because uh, we were very poor and we're still poor. And so uh, at, at around five o'clock when all the festivities were over, we were starving. So we ended up going to Columbia down in uh, at St. Armand's. So now Almost every year for the last 20 years, we try to go back to the Columbia restaurant and we've been to all their locations. Uh, And that's just a place of familiarity. It's kind of like the apple tree. It's a place of nostalgia. What do you have in your marriage, in your family? We say, I don't have any place. Well, look back at your family. Where are the places that you began building patterns, building uh, places of memories? And, And we should have that. For her, that's the apple tree. Now, right after this is some of the most intense language in the Old Testament. And it's colorful and powerful. Look at it with me. She says this to her beloved, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Why? For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes or flashes of fire. The very flame of Yahweh. This is one of the only references in this book of God. And so she's using some powerful language, but she begins, notice with me, by inviting him to set her as a seal upon both his heart and his arm. Now, what is going on with that? What does that mean? It could mean one of three things. So I want you to jot these down as we take notes. Just kind of consider one of these three things, or maybe it's all of them. But a seal could mean one of three things. First of all, a seal signifies something secret or hidden from view. So in Isaiah 29.11, we read a book is sealed and can't be read. This is, this is a throwback to how books in ancient times looked. They weren't published in the beautiful leather-bound uh, way that we 
bind books or Bibles today. By the way, thank you so much for this. This is an incredible gift. Very thankful for this. I'm already marking it up and loving it. But in the ancient times, you wouldn't have a book necessarily bound like that. It would be a scroll that would be rolled up. And you would seal the outside of a scroll, in a sense, to keep it, uh, keep its contents veiled, keep its contents sealed or concealed or secret. And so what she could be saying is like a sealed scroll, our love should never be shared with anyone else. It is only for us. Or secondly, maybe she meant this, a seal means something that is secure and closed. Remember earlier in the song, chapter 4, verse 12, we sang, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. She's a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Uh, As water is very precious in the Middle East, Those who kept wells would often secure them by rolling a large stone to the mouth. We read that in the book of Genesis, uh, where the seal, the the stone needed to be rolled away. And a similar thing happened in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 66, where, remember, Pilate told the Pharisees to secure Jesus' tomb so the, the disciples wouldn't steal the body. It says in that passage, they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So in that sense... This idea of a seal means something is secure uh, and sealed and closed. There's security. So she could be saying that our love should be both secure in your heart, but also displayed publicly for all to see. Or number three, a third meaning of an idea of a seal is that it meant permanence and ownership. So in Jeremiah 32, 14, kind of a a foreshadowing of the return of Israel back into the, the land of promise, God says to Jeremiah, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. What God is saying there through the prophet Jeremiah is this sealed deed means I'm the official owner. And even though you're sent out in exile to Babylon, one day I will restore you again Uh, to the land of Israel after this exile. And so it's a kind of a promise that I'm the owner of this land. In fact, we have a New Testament corresponding verse in Ephesians 1.13, where God says through Paul, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, this is what happened when you became a Christian, church, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter how much you feel saved today, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so that idea, like a king's signet ring, stamping the seal of a document, then delivered by the king, coming to the uh, person that it it was um, sent to, that arrival of that seal document meant there was a permanence and an authenticity and, and a true ownership. So she could be saying, our love is gonna last forever and I belong to you just like the love of Christ to the believer. So let's put all three of these possibilities together in one complete thought. When she says, set me as a seal on your heart and on your arm, I believe she's saying, because our love will last forever, and because we belong to one another, this love should never be shared with anyone else, but it should be secure and displayed openly for all to see and celebrate. What a great picture of what love should be in a marriage relationship. But then she goes a little bit dark. She goes goth here. And look at this next section. She says, for love is strong as death. I mean, this looks like a Hot Topic t-shirt, right? Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. 
the very flame of Yahweh. Now this seems a little bit strange. She's talking about love, but now she's mentioning death and jealousy in a love relationship. Now to talk about jealousy in marriage or jealousy in love sounds a little bit contradictory. We're told in the scriptures by the same guy. So in, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul mentions that jealousy is one of the obvious acts of the sinful nature. You don't need to, you don't need to scrub someone's life to go, yeah, that's sin. They're pretty obvious. Idolatry, impurity, sexual immorality. You just go, yeah, we all agree those are sin. Even the world would say, yeah, politicians shouldn't be living that way. But jealousy is one of those. That's sinful jealousy. But then in 2 Corinthians, the same writer could say, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Why the contradiction, Paul? Why is jealousy a sin to the Galatians, but to you, it's okay to the Corinthians? Well, something's happening here. I believe there is sinful jealousy, but then there's also godly jealousy. Now, I know even saying that sounds, you're like, okay, that's like a politician saying that he's never lied. I get it, I get it. That sounds a little strange. Godly jealousy, okay, pilgrim. Um, but I want to define this a little bit. So when we talk about jealousy... Uh, and envy, sometimes we get those two confused. Let me clarify, and we've done this recently. We, we quoted this in a sermon a few months ago, but a Collins says this. There's a distinction between jealousy and envy. So to envy is to want something which belongs to another person. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife or his servant, his ox or donkey, or his iPhone 12, which someone just showed me theirs today, uh, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Right? In contrast, Colin says, that's envy. In contrast, jealousy is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. Although jealousy can apply to our jobs, our possessions, or our reputations, the word more often refers to anxiety, which comes when we are afraid that the affections of a loved one might be lost to a rival. So we fear that our mates, or perhaps our children, will be lured away by some other person who, when compared to us, seems to be more attractive, capable, and successful. You see the difference? Envy and jealousy. So sinful jealousy, we're going to define it this way if you're taking note. Sinful jealousy is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. So what happens, this becomes sin when you begin acting in a way that you control and manipulate someone that you love out of insecurity or fear or doubt. So it's more than just telling your loved one, watch out for her, she's a temptress. It's more than that. It's actually where you begin to control your spouse's contacts, their schedule, and whenever you see an outsider, you look at them with suspicion. I'm a little sus of that girl. I think she's going to try to lure your heart away. And it's like, well, that's my second cousin, so I don't think we need to worry about that. And so what happens is you check his phone when he's not looking just to make sure that she's not texting him. Rather than just asking him, frankly, have you been around that person? Have you seen her? Have you talked to her? And then believing him. So that's sinful jealousy. Listen to godly jealousy. Godly jealousy that Paul defines in 2 Corinthians is expecting exclusivity for what someone has committed themselves to. Do you guys see the difference? So when we hear that God is a jealous God, it's not in that first sense that God doesn't trust us. He's fearful that we're going to run away from him. And so he's got to root out all those other lovers and control us. No, it means he expects us to live for him, right? So it's not an insecurity, it's an expectation. In fact, the root word for jealous is where we get the word zeal or zealous from. 
And that word is applied to God. And when it's applied to God, when we say he's a jealous God, it means he demands that we worship him and love him exclusively. He expects us to live for him, to glorify him, to honor and follow and love and serve him. Why? Because he doesn't share his glory with anyone else. And he's not jealous of other little G-gods that get our worship. He's jealous for our worship by expecting it. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, many Christians nowadays have a kind of love which is too fond of ease and too full of compromise to kindle any jealousy in their breasts. You see, you and I should have within us a sense of godly jealousy. Godly jealousy within our families that we have an expectation that no, we're not going to worship mammon. No, we're not going to worship the things of this world. We're not going to bow down to another idol. It's expected that we are going to be presented to Christ as a soul-devoted bride. And so this passage here is telling us that committed love, it's as strong as death. What does that mean? It means it's permanent. It's not only eternal, it's infernal. It burns uncontrollably. No wonder we need to be slow to let it awaken. Look at verse 7. She says, many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. It's, it's a flash of fire. It's like Yahweh's fire. And she says that, and this is a pivotal verse, she says that you can't quench that fire with the fire brigade. So you can't call the fire brigade to come out and put the fire out. It's not going to happen. But neither can you flush it away and drown it out with a flood. So what she's saying is true love is steady. It's unshakable. It's not a quick flash of heat like a little firework that lights up and then immediately putters out. But, but the second half of verse 7, I believe, is very pivotal. The second half of verse 7, she says, If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. In other words, you can't put a price tag on true love and bargain with someone's heart. We've all heard the Beatles song, right? Can't buy me love. We've all heard that. So she's saying, you can't buy my love and it's despicable if any man sought to do that. Now hopefully, if you look at the title of this book, there's some little alarm bells ringing in your head. Hopefully, as biblical scholars, you remember whose book this is. This is called the Song of what? Solomon, yes, the Song of Solomon. You weren't too sure about that answer, by the way. Uh, Song of Solomon. Now, if you remember, how many wives and concubines did Solomon have? He had 1,000. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's a different woman in his bed every night for three and a half years. If he got married to 300 wives, that is someone doing, I've done a lot of weddings, but that's a wedding every single day for almost an entire year. And so how did Solomon acquire all these wives? Was he really that awesome? Was he really that good looking? Were the women just lined up like, oh, hopefully I'll get to be December 14th and, and I'll get to marry him. Is that what it is? Or was he the richest king ever to live in Israel and he was just paying dowries to acquire women? You see, polygamy, even though it's in the Bible, that doesn't mean the Bible endorses or encourages it. No, it's forbidden. So when the patriarchs and kings multiplied wives, that was always exposed for the fraud and the horror that it truly is. And we see the fallout of polygamy in the patriarchs' lives and in the life of Solomon, who in 1 Kings 11, it says his wives drew his heart away from him because of their many idols. It was the amount of wives that he had that ultimately led to his spiritual downfall. So that's a blight on these men, not a behavior to be implemented. So why would Solomon allow this little lyric to be snuck into his song? 
I mean, reading the romance of a platonic, faithful love between Solomon and any woman should make us scratch our heads and say something's off. Now, as we said before in this study, what's happening here? I believe Solomon wrote this book near the end of his life as a picture of glorious conjugal love between one man and one woman. And I believe he wrote this, and the reason it fits into our canon of scripture so beautifully is because he was writing it to challenge through song that young people would sing as they began their marriages, that this song was a song to challenge wayward Israel toward covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Remember, Hosea had the same theme where he really emphasized the covenant relationship of a faithful Yahweh to an unfaithful Israel, and he likened it to a harlot. So Solomon's song goes a different angle. It's a beautiful ode to covenant faithfulness and intimacy and union and friendship that he never experienced and that Israel would likely have experienced if she were to not awaken love to so many idolatrous lovers. So Solomon could be saying here, I am to be utterly despised because I tried to trade my wealth for love. And you can't purchase love. It's a gift that's freely bestowed. Now, if that wasn't interesting enough, we get something very special that happens starting in verse eight. Uh, so you'll note your heading says final advice. Um, and we have verses eight through 12. Notice with me, the others pipe in and they say, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Now, this is not a cut down. Um, they're not describing her in a derogatory way, making fun of her. They're speaking about a young girl who's not yet blossomed, who's not yet matured. Now, notice that they, they kind of have a, a, an either or. So they say in verse nine, if she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So in one sense, we're gonna reward her with a gift, silver. In the other sense, we're gonna, we're gonna box her in and close her off and board her in with boards of cedar. Remember, cedar of Lebanon, it's an expensive thing. So we're gonna put resources to protecting her extra if she's a door. But if she's a wall, we're gonna bless her. Now notice, she says in verse 10, this is her response, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. So what's happening here? This might seem confusing. I believe that all of these verses, 8 through 12, are a flashback. I believe this is a flashback to what happened years and years and years ago. So remember, years ago, Solomon came calling, and we read from the beginning of the Song of Solomon that Shulamith's brothers were actively protecting her, not only her virginity, but her purity. Now, brothers stepping in, I know we all have older brothers, brothers stepping in and being a little overprotective of your relationships, that might seem a little aggressive. Um, I think it's a little overemphasized in the East um, and it's mocked and derided in the West. We kind of mock that, but it is certainly commendable that her brothers are protecting her. Uh, and we see this in Rebecca, Dinah, and Tamar. All of her brothers, their brothers protected them, some a little bit extreme in the book of Genesis. But the idea is that, hey, we're gonna help you navigate this relationship so you're not abused or taken advantage of. Because just because a guy comes calling doesn't mean he's going to be good to you, right? He's going to come into your life and we want to kind of protect you from the wolves. We've got to watch out for these guys. And so what does the wall or door analogy mean? I think in effect they're saying, if she takes our advice and protects herself like a wall, then we're going to reward her. And we're going to bless her and we're going to encourage her in that. But if she's too open and too forward with men, she's spoken for, but she acts like a loose open door 
where it looks protected, but then the door's open, anyone can come on in. Then we're gonna have to use extra means and kind of box her in and, and close her off. So look at her response in verse 10. She said, hey, I was a wall. When I look back at my, my childhood and my, my youth, I was a wall. She says, my breasts were like towers. That doesn't mean their size, it means they were well defended, they were unscalable, they were secure. She had listened to the counsel of her family. She wasn't living with impropriety. Somebody in first service came up to me afterwards and they were like, man, I wish that I was more of a wall. I wish my, my friends would have encouraged me, my family would have encouraged me to be more of a wall. But because of that, she was observed in the eyes of Solomon as someone who would receive his peace, who would receive his favor and attention. But notice the vineyards in verses 11 and 12. So she says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman and he let out or he rented out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. And then she says, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, 200. So what is going on here? I think the vineyards represent something of great cost or value. So follow the train of thought here, church, follow this. Most likely, these verses mean that Solomon owns a very vast and expensive vineyard. The cost for renting out, if you're a landlord, you want to rent out, you want to rent out a portion of his vineyard, the cost was 1,000 pieces of silver. So you've got to pay the 1,000 pieces of silver, and then you get your section of my vineyard. Years ago, Shulamis brothers did that. They rented out a portion of Solomon's vineyard. We remember Shulamith was working for her brothers in the vineyard, and she was left out too long in the sun, so her skin began to darken, and she began, began to be insecure of her dark complexion. But here she says, I'm a vineyard. I'm of value and worth. And even though my brothers rented out a section of Solomon's vineyard, my own life is not for sale. And Solomon will not be able to buy me no matter what the sum is. He can keep his thousand and the people who make the money off the, off the vineyard can keep their 200. But my love is free to give to whomever I desire. In fact, one commentator, I love this, they said on her lips, the phrase, my body, my choice, means the exact opposite of a feminist manifesto. It's the commitment to preserve her purity until the day comes when she can offer it as a gift to her husband. Wow. My body, my choice. So some people believe, this is fascinating, that Solomon, as he's writing this song, was thinking back and recounting back to an actual scenario where years and years and years ago, he fell in love with a dark-skinned Lebanese woman named Shulamith who was working in his vineyard. And he tried to purchase her love. And when he did that, this offensive notion destroyed any chances of their relationship. And so he looks back and says, I can't believe I made that mistake. And so he wrote the Song of Solomon as kind of a fictional account of what would have happened if he were not to have come to purchase her to be one of his wives, but if he were just to lay that down and allow her to be won by his own love. It's a fascinating proposition. We're not sure if that's exactly the case. But we come to the two-verse epilogue, and we conclude this poetic song with the husband and wife interacting in verses 13 and 14. First he says, verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And then she responds, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Okay, so notice what's happening here. They, they both have a request of one another. They both seem to be apart. She is in the garden, 
and he is coming up over the mountain. Notice what he's asking for. He's asking just to hear her voice. So after years and years of marriage, even though she has lots of friends and people around her, uh, he is ultimately growing to desire her advice. He's desiring her counsel. He's desiring her perspective. He's grown to not just have an alongside companion, but someone who he longs to listen to as an advisor. And she, she says, hey, please hurry home. That's her request. And even though she's got people around her to love and support her, she is ultimately seeking his companionship. So together, as she seeks companionship and he seeks her counsel, their marriage has finally blossomed and matured deeper than any physical intimacy and kind of that immature uh, longing for each other's bodies. Now they just long for each other's company. And we see, though, even though romance is alive and well, they've grown to be lifelong partners who value one another greatly. And so the final chords are played, the music video ends with the lyrics, happily ever after, and then we fade to black. It's been a fascinating and challenging book as we study it, but it's a book that reminds us that there is love that's stronger than death. And what I want to do now is kind of apply this last section specifically to our wives. So... Um, Husbands last week, I think we had three points, right? We had three points. So not to be undone, wives, you get six points. Um, (laughs) Our three are a little harder, though. So here's six points, six aspects of submission uh, from this text. This is not exhaustive. Uh, Ephesians 5 goes much more in depth. uh, But from this text, I see six things that we can apply to wives. Number one, I want to challenge you as a wife to learn to lean on your husband. Verse 5, we see a married couple spending many years together, and rather than those years pulling them apart, she's learned to lean and rely on her husband, to rest on him and to trust him. Wife, are you leaning on your husband? No, not while you're sleeping. I don't mean that. It's already determined. If you're newly married, let me just give you a little, let me give you a little spoiler alert. You could have the, the largest king bed in the world, and she still owns 99.5% of that bed. Right? So you, you own the 0.5% of the bed on your side, and it's still her side of the bed. Okay? So I don't mean that leaning on him while you're sleeping. Do you need him? Are you Mrs. Independent or Mrs. Capable? Or have you learned to be vulnerable, be submissive, even to be cooperative? I want to encourage you. Learn to lean on your husband. This is a mark of maturity. It's not a mark of maturity to say, I've arrived and I'm independent. That's a mark of immaturity. But to be able to say, no, I, I need my husband. I I need to lean upon his wisdom, his prayer, his support, his encouragement. That's a mark of maturity. Number two, I want to encourage you to learn that love is stronger and more lasting than your emotions. Shulamith admits that love is stronger than death. It's not a quick fire that kind of springs up and then immediately dies down. It's more tangible than emotion or feelings. I was fascinated this week to learn that there is an actual lifespan of an emotion in the body. Did you guys know this? According to some neuroscientists, so this is not just me, neuroscientists have found that the physiological lifespan of an emotion in the body and brain is an average of around 90 seconds. And you're like, yep, that that pretty much summarizes my anger. Yep, 90 seconds. So they measure the sensations such as adrenaline or heat in the face or tightness in the throat or rapid heartbeat. And all of those arise, peak, and dissipate on their own within a minute and a half. So the, the, the thick of that emotion that you're feeling in this moment is not eternal. And, and too many women and men put stock in their feelings rather than in the truth. 
I see a lot of marriages where insecurities abound, as well as sinful jealousy. But those things are not rooted or grounded in truth. So if you're a wife, I want to encourage you to learn that your husband's commitment to you is quorum Deo. It's before the face of God. And God's love for you will carry well beyond the grave. Your husband might do you wrong. He, his love may fail you. But the love of God is stronger and more lasting uh, than even the grave. And so our emotions come and our emotions go within 90 seconds. But the love of God is eternal. So rest your hope in that. Number three, I want to encourage you as a wife to learn that true love is not purchased but it's given. We've seen the sugar daddies. We've seen this. Sex can be bought. Love must be given. True love cannot be stopped by external forces like water or wealth. You can't take the wealth of a desperate man and turn that into love. Love is a gift that's bestowed and asks for nothing in return. I, I was cracking up. I read this a few years ago. I don't know how the story ends. So if you know how the story ends, would you email me? Uh, just find my email at pastors at Calvary Shoreline. I'd love to hear how this story ends up. But back in 2013, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, a man was so desperate to find love that he began to buy billboards to find someone's interest. So his name was Gordon, and he has um, billboards all over, or did, in the city of Charlotte that said, I'm Gordon, let's have dinner. And he has some random pictures. In this case, it's some, that's not even him, but it's some guy playing guitar. I don't know if it did the trick, but I looked up helpgordyfindlove.com, and it's actually a Chinese hacker website. So don't look that up later today. I don't know if poor Gordy has actually found love. But true love is not something you try to buy. It's a gift. And so we in our marriages need to be reminded that we're not transactional in marriage. Well, let me do this and then I now, now I deserve love. Let me, and some of us were raised that way. Well, I'll just do this and then I'm loved. Then I'm accepted. Um, maybe I'll be adopted and this family will think that I'm worthy of adoption or fostering. Some of us grew up with that kind of, uh, kind of a block there, not understanding that the love of God, um, it did pay a price. It did cost something, something great, the, the blood of Christ. But true love is not purchased. It's given freely and it's received freely. Number four, as a wife, I want to encourage you to learn to build safeguards around your heart. Shulamis brothers wanted to ensure that she was a guarded wall, not because they were cruel, but because they were protecting her. They loved her. They wanted to make sure she wasn't a loose door that swung open for any and every guy. And she repeated that refrain, if there's any chorus in the Song of Solomon, it's do not awaken love until it so desires. Why? Because if you awaken it to the wrong person, then it's going to be devastating. Proverbs 4.23 encourages all of us to watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. We need to guard our heart. We need to keep our heart. Because like a wellspring, it will flow out. Every issue of life flows from the heart. So your heart, wife, it must be guarded and protected. No other lover should be entertained in your heart. No other fantasies of life apart from your husband or your family should be entertained. No other person should ever enter your marriage bed either literally or in a fantasy. No flirting, no attraction should ever be pursued with someone aside from your husband. You must protect your heart from even seeking out the attention of other men who give you a little more attention or the twinkle of their eye than your husband does. You must watch your heart, keep it with diligence because it's a protected wellspring that will affect every area. So build safeguards around your heart. Number five, 
I want to encourage you as a wife to learn to flourish in your husband's expression of love for you. So in verse 10, Shulamit says, I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. In other words, I was appreciated by him. He saw me and he put well, worth and wealth and value in who I was. And I was in his eyes one who finds peace. I think that some women want to flourish in another husband's expression. So they find out how romantic he is and she kind of looks and goes, would you get with it, bonehead? I wish you were more romantic like that guy. But we need to learn to flourish in our husband's expression of love for us. I get it. You, you appreciate chores and that's how you feel love. And homeboy just wants to write poetry. And you're like, I don't care about the poetry. Just do the dishes and I love you. I get it, but we have to learn to flourish in his expression of love. Dr. Schleff, uh, Jeff Schloss, that's a hard one, he showed how important it is for a wife to feel loved and cherished. It's incredibly important. He found this, that if wives don't have the confidence that they're loved and cherished by their husband, across all cultures, they die sooner. And they actually die sooner than single women. So as a wife, you need to flourish in his unique expression of love for you. Number six, and finally, as a wife, I want to encourage you to learn to enjoy and even seek, wow, seek the companionship of your husband. At the conclusion of this great song, she invites him to come quickly and just whisk her away. And the adventure of the song continues. But she just wants to be with him. And, and wife, is that true of you? Do you just simply long to be around your man? Or are you desperately hoping that that business trip will not be canceled due to COVID? And you're just praying that you'll get that time away with the girls. Many marriages seek companionship with everyone else. Why? Because there's an abiding friendship that's severely lacking at home. But I want to encourage you to learn to enjoy and even seek your husband's companionship. I mean, early on in the marriage, Jen figured out that I liked football. And yes, American football, if we're keeping notes on that. Uh, I loved it. And so she sat down. I mean, she, she didn't understand what a quarterback, you know, the whole thing like I thought a quarterback was a refund. Like she didn't understand anything about football. She didn't get it. It'll take you a minute. Um, but then eventually she, she got the Bucks jersey and she began to like get into football. She began to enjoy that. So she made my thing her thing. And now it's a little bit obsessive. Um, I, she wanted to get a Brady tattoo, number 12 on her arm. I'm like, no, slow down. Chillax. Listen, if we want to enjoy a marriage that doesn't just endure the decades, but flourishes through the decades, then we need to learn to enjoy and seek our friendship and fellowship with one another. Now, as we close, just a few final thoughts. We've said it before, love is not for sale. It's freely given. It's mutual, safe, deep, and eternal. So because love is not for sale, we save it as a special gift. Don't just sell yourself out and give it to whoever. It's a special gift. Because love is mutual, we need to learn to lean heavily on one another. Because love is safe, we're not going to live with insecurity or sinful jealousy. Because love is eternal, we're going to safeguard it from others. And even though the Song of Songs is a wonderful picture of marital bliss between husband and wife, that love is ultimately incomplete. It shadows a greater and fuller picture of the love of God in Christ for his church. Jesus gave up his life freely for his church, and though the price was high, it was his life, he paid the price for our redemption through his blood, his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Jesus' love will never fail you. Jesus' love is safe and it's eternal, and we can rest in his love for us this morning, even as we cry out as the bride, we can cry out, make haste, come quickly, Maranatha, 
Lord Jesus. Solomon's song shows us there's a faithful bridegroom who longs to be joined to his beloved. And though we might be tempted to awaken love to other false gods and lying lovers, there is one whose love is as strong as death, who died to pay the price and win the affection of his bride. And so may we build our lives upon his love, upon his word. May we not be shaken. May we not be drawn away to other lovers. May we keep ourselves and our hearts with all diligence. That's my prayer for us as we conclude this book. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing a song as we conclude this service and just reflect on the love of God, the truth of God, and how we build our lives upon the gospel. So Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this great book that has been very challenging. Uh, the most difficult, it said, book to interpret in all the Bible. And Lord, we took a stab at it. We thank you that your spirit is the one reminding us of our great need for Christ. So we, as the loved and beloved bride, we look to our bridegroom and even so, come Lord Jesus. Would you return, Lord? And we thank you for your rule and reign. We thank you, Lord, for your kingdom come, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, today we pray that we would submit to you, that we allow your spirit through sanctifying work to build our lives upon your truth, upon your word, and that we wouldn't be shaken by the fears of society, by the anxiety of the moment or tomorrow, but that we would rest our hope in a love that is as strong as death, that even overcomes the grave, who rises again victoriously. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for the love that you've given us in Christ. We do build our life upon your truth today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.